0: A company's current ratio compares their current assets to their current liabilities. Current, in this context, meaning relevant within a year. So the current ratio takes all of the assets they have access to in a particular year and all the payments they'll have to make and the debt that they'll acquire and things like that for that same year, and it compares them. A ratio of 2 to 1 is considered to be pretty good as it shows they have twice as many assets as liabilities, so they'll be less likely to find themselves with, for instance, an electric bill that they're unable to pay or employee paychecks that they're unable to sign, which would leave them prone to going under or having to borrow money. But the term asset needs to be broken apart here because there are two main types of asset relevant to this term, liquid and illiquid assets. A liquid asset is one that can be easily converted into anything else. And usually the metric we use to gauge liquidity is cash. Because cash, currency, is the most liquid, the most convertible, the most able to be exchanged for other things of all assets in almost every circumstance. You can convert value that is held in cash into just about any other type of value and without losing much or any of that value during the conversion process. Illiquid assets, on the other hand, are far trickier to convert A house, for instance, is typically an illiquid asset, as you can't walk to the corner grocery store and buy a pack of gum with the wealth you have boxed up in that house. The house may be valuable, but it's not spendable. It's not break-apartable in that way. So in a situation in which buying a pack of gum is the most important thing in the world, a dollar in cash may be better to have than a million dollars locked away in real estate because of that dollar's immense liquidity. The concept of liquidity is fascinating because of the seeming paradoxes it can lead to. You could be the wealthiest person in the world on paper, but if all your wealth is tied up in difficult-to-convert illiquid assets like houses and artwork and rare stamp collections, you could find yourself having to borrow money to pay for your Netflix subscription each month. The same is true with some types of business that are heavily invested in infrastructure and other illiquid assets. It's not unusual for a well-funded, well-moneyed business to go under or be bought out because they didn't have sufficient money available to pay their bills despite having massive resources at their disposal. They did not have enough liquid assets to handle those monthly concerns. On the other hand, someone with assets that are purely liquid will often find that their assets don't keep up with inflation. You'll have full access to all of the wealth that you own if you keep your cash buried in your backyard or stashed in a mattress, or even in a checking account at the bank with no minimum attached to it. But that money will generally decrease in value with time due to inflation, while investing it in something less liquid, like stocks or bonds or even higher yield bank accounts with a minimum requirement to keep it open, that could help you keep up with inflation. Earning a small percentage on your wealth each year, just enough to keep up or mostly keep up with inflationary forces. Having all of your wealth stored as liquid assets unfortunately leaves you sitting on a slowly diminishing pile of money, money that you can use to always get a pack of gum when you want it, but which over time will be worth less and less gum. To earn wealth as interest on other wealth, you usually have to put your money on ice. You have to make it illiquid in some way, which then necessitates a melting period before you can use the wealth that you've frozen. It's frozen, by the way, because it's being put to other uses in the meantime. The money you put in your bank account is being invested by the bank, and they pay you part of the profits from those investments as interest. Thinking of these types of investments in that way makes it more clear why you don't have access to that money exactly, precisely when you need it, because it's already being used for something else. But even with full knowledge about why this happens, about why banks and such work this way, tying up your assets can be kind of a pain. You could invest a million dollars in a famous painting, and that painting may increase in value by the time you sell it years later. But if you're forced to sell that painting ahead of time, because you need to access some portion of that million dollars you spent on it, and which it is still presumably valued at, you may be selling it into an unfavorable market. And most likely you'll take a hit on the price if you're selling it under less than ideal circumstances based on market conditions and based on the available potential buyers. A savvy buyer may realize you're at a disadvantage and lowball you. A non-savvy buyer may not know the value of the painting or may not have sufficient funds to offer more than a few thousand dollars on that million dollar painting. So you might think of having to pull your illiquid assets out of the freezer early as something like flash melting ice with a blowtorch, which will almost always result in at least some evaporation of value that was previously there because of the method that you're using to make it liquid again. Letting the ice melt naturally brings better results. And allowing it to just sit there, frozen and untouched, is best of all in terms of maintaining value. But when it's frozen solid, you cannot use it to buy gum. And if you sit and wait for it to melt, you could be waiting a very long time past the point when you needed that gum. And so sometimes the only option is the wildly imperfect one of having to instigate that melting yourself and thereby losing some of the wealth that you had frozen. The terms liquid and illiquid mean roughly the same thing as I've described here when you apply them to the stock market. though. There are some additional stock market specific details that I left out, but for the purposes of today's episode, understanding one, the main difference between the terms liquid and illiquid asset, two, why you would want illiquid assets over liquid ones and vice versa, and three, how this influences the economy, understanding those points puts us in a good position to have a conversation about another topic that may at first seem orthogonal to these ideas, but which is actually related in a very interesting way. Today I want to talk about initial coin offerings, China, and asset tokenization. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Let's Know Things is an independent, listener-supported show. If you are enjoying what you hear, consider popping by iTunes and leaving a review. You can also share the show with a friend or with your social network of choice. And you can also help contribute monetarily. If you go to patreon.com slash letsknowthings, you can contribute whatever makes sense to you and gain access to an ad-free version of the show, the discussions taking place on the community over there, on various topics, and potentially some other goodies as well. A huge thanks to everyone who's already contributed in some way, shape, or form. I very much appreciate that. Thank you. And if you're considering doing so in the future, thank you as well, preemptively. Another great way to help support the show is to check out our sponsors, the first of which today is Audible. I am a huge fan of books, and I was a holdout for a long while when it came to audiobooks, because I prefer to read them with my eyeballs, typically. But audiobooks have found a place in my life. If you think about it, audiobooks are just really long podcasts, which is wonderful. And if you've yet to make the jump, consider giving Audible a try. It is a massive library of audiobooks. And if you go to audibletrial.com/lkt, like the initials of the show LKT, you'll receive a free month trial of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice, any book from their entire catalog. And if you are Lacking inspiration in that department, stay tuned till the end of this episode and I will give a book recommendation. And the other sponsor today is Everlane. Everlane is by far my favorite clothing company. They do not slather their garments with labels, they produce everything ethically. They are doing their best to counter the fast fashion movement, which has a slew of associated problems. They make clothing that is structurally sound, meant to last a good long time, things that are not fashionable, but instead just look quite good and go well with everything. I would never encourage you to buy anything that you do not need, but if you have a gap in your wardrobe that could use filling, go to letsknowthings.com Everlane, and that will take you to their website, and anything you purchase, I will receive a commission for. So it won't add anything to your cost but it will, as a byproduct of your shopping, help support the show. So, a nice way to kill two birds with one stone if, in fact, those are two birds that you wish to destroy with a stone. Let's note Everlane. All right, let's get back to the show. The article I want to unspool today comes from Fortune magazine, and it's entitled Cryptocurrency Chaos as China Cracks Down on Initial Coin Offerings. There are several concepts here that I think warrant definition from the outset. If you haven't yet listened to the Bitcoin episode of this podcast, which was episode 56, I believe, You might want to go back and listen to that either before or after this episode, as that will add a whole lot of additional context to the topic today. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum are units of exchange predicated on finitude, just like most currencies, but rather than being limited because they're tied to valuable resources like gold or silver or copper, new Bitcoins are generated by so-called Bitcoin miners. leverage computing resources to come up with complex strings of numbers that regularly unlock new coins that are offered up by the Bitcoin software. These coins, or tokens, as they're more generically called outside of Bitcoin, alongside other cryptocurrencies, have value because they are limited and because people are willing to pay for them. They are useful in that they are valued in this way, but also because they're easy to exchange, relatively. They are liquid, in that they can be spent on all kinds of things, and can be converted into cash with little friction today. And importantly, transactions between them are managed outside of any governmental system. So while traditional currencies are maintained and secured by national governments, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are managed and secured by software, allowing them to be decentralized outside the legal mandate of state actors, which makes them often a superior way of exchanging value or storing wealth if you wish to remain anonymous or outside of those governmental systems. Initial coin offerings or ICOs are one use case for cryptocurrencies that makes use of the same general structure and concept but not the same coin production process as Bitcoin. ICOs have become very popular very quickly because they represent an alternative to IPOs, initial public offerings, which involve a company becoming a publicly traded asset. An IPO, superficially, involves breaking your company up into pieces so that outsiders can buy into it, can own part of the company. This is a great way to generate revenue for a company so that you have more liquid assets, allowing you to hire people and pay bills and buy packs of gum, which helps solve the problem of many companies being worth a lot on paper because of their potential earnings and their illiquid assets like infrastructure and patents, but at the same time having little money in the bank to spend on necessities. But IPOs are also often a downside for business founders and employees as it gives partial control or in some cases full control to outside entities to folks who might have a different vision for the company's direction for instance it can also have a deleterious effect on the value of the company depending on how it's received on these markets the perception of their value could decrease for instance Once the complexities of the open market take hold and metrics, other than absolute value produced by the company's goods and services, are factored into the math of their valuations. In other words, things get cluttered and complex, and not always for reasons tied to the actual performance of the company, when a company has an IPO. An ICO, at least in theory, allows companies to acquire liquid assets. Without giving up control or opening themselves up to the risks and fickleness of the open market. A properly run ICO could allow a company to sell pieces of their company in a similar way, but without going public. And they do this by offering up coins or tokens that represent pieces of the company, but without the connection to the stock market and all the accompanying hoops. That must be jumped through and regulations that must be adhered to that often come tandem with an IPO process. An ICO generally works more like a crowdfunding campaign, like Kickstarter. The company says, hey, we want to upgrade our servers and we need a million bucks to do that, so we are offering one million coins at a dollar apiece, and that will allow us to buy the servers we need. If they reach that goal, then all the folks who offered up their dollar per coin are charged and the company now has a million dollars in liquid assets, in cash, that they did not have before. And the folks who own those coins, all digital coins, remember, like Bitcoin, but tied to a specific company, they might see an increase in the value of their coins because those coins are tied to some aspect of the company. Maybe it entitles them to a share of the profits. Maybe it operates a bit like a stock in the company in all respects except how it was purchased. So conceivably, each coin may come to be worth $2 or even more if the company they're attached to does well, which would allow savvy investors to potentially double their money or more by participating in an ICO and buying up a bunch of these coins, giving liquid assets to that company, and then earning back their investment over time, as that company does better. So these digital tokens may represent a non-official share of the company. Maybe the million coins adds up to a 10% ownership of the business as a whole, and as a result, someone who owns all million of them would own a significant chunk of the company. The non-officialness of the ICO process may also be made official through paperwork and contracts in which case the purchase of the pseudo stocks is legal but still manages to dodge the stock market hullabaloo while also allowing the gray market of coin trades to take place each coin again representing a piece of the company but coins might also represent a share of later forthcoming revenues or something else entirely ethereum another cryptocurrency that's recently become quite popular got started with an initial coin offering And its tokens are exchanged like bitcoins as currency, but can also be used as smart contracts. So they have a latent value proposition outside of their implied value as a unit of exchange. So much like a society that uses candy bars as a unit of exchange instead of dollar bills, maybe you'd pay 10,000 Snickers for a car or 1 million Mars bars for a house, the currency itself might also have a latent purpose when it comes to coins. That of being eaten, or in the case of Ethereum, the ability to use one of these coins as a smart contract if you want to. But that's not always the case. Sometimes these coins represent something intangible like fandom or support of a concept, but still have value due to their finitude and popularity. As is the case with gold compared to other currencies with latent value used throughout the ages. Sometimes scarcity is valuable unto itself in the perception of these markets. So an ICO is a company offering up shares of coins or tokens, which in this context are two words that mean the same thing, to generate liquid assets that they can then spend on something they need. These ICOs, unlike IPOs, are not currently government regulated. And as a result, they fall into kind of a legal gray area They're generally allowed in most places, but there are also typically no legal ramifications if a company takes your money and you get nothing in return for your supposed investment. So it's a market rife with scams and abuse at the moment. And you have to be significantly savvy and potentially ready to lose your money if you want to play in this space today. Looping back around to the article then, China has banned ICOs which has caused headaches for companies already running such schemes and those who were planning to rely on the liquid assets generated from ICOs to keep them going until they reached profitability as well. But it's also messed with cryptocurrency markets as a whole because the coins that folks were buying via these ICOs have become popular as trading tender in the high-speculation cryptocurrency markets, meaning folks were buying, let's say, 100 coins for a buck apiece at a new startup's ICO, and then trading those coins for other coins, either from other companies' ICOs or for things like Bitcoin and Ethereum, which are two of the more established cryptocurrencies, but which are not tied to particular businesses. And they also tend to be two of the more easily convertible cryptocurrencies at the moment because of their perceived stability. Now, if you look at all this and say, man, that sounds a lot like gambling in a way, doesn't it? Well, there's a reason for that. These token-based systems have not been around long enough for regulators to fully understand how it all works, how it all fits together and what anything is worth and how these gray markets connect to and fit within the larger economic system. So China decided to essentially say, all right, this has been fun and I'm glad you're all making this kind of work amongst yourselves but this is a highly regulated economy we've got going here so we're going to hit the brakes and take a closer look at this and see where it might go next before making any further decisions and allowing anyone to participate in this type of market. China announced their ban on ICOs and cryptocurrency markets have reeled as a result of this clampdown. in part because it adds additional uncertainty to an already uncertain space and in part because they worry that China may be taking this step as part of a preliminary effort to enter the cryptocurrency space themselves, offering their own cryptocurrency that will allow them to more or less dominate the digital coin market and add that market to their soft power arsenal. In practice, that would mean, most likely, giving up one of the prime benefits of cryptocurrencies, its decentralization with no government oversight or control in exchange for a much more powerful digital currency market with, one would assume, far better infrastructure and usability. So you might end up with a Chinese digital currency with all the benefits of a mainstream traditional currency, but also a lot of the benefits of a cryptocurrency. It would be a very bold move and one that A government like China's would be almost uniquely qualified to conceive of and roll out. Such a move would be difficult to manage in a more open economy, where there are fewer direct mechanisms of control to leverage if you want to overhaul much of what makes that economy tick. And importantly, China is currently expanding their soft power around the world at a rapid pace, building infrastructure in key places like Kenya and Pakistan and Sri Lanka and Uzbekistan, helping local residents with new train lines and power and internet infrastructure and brand new government buildings. And in turn, as a result of that relationship, China gains a sort of favored nation status when it comes to acquiring locally mined resources and building their own cultural infrastructure in those countries, like the Confucius Institutes that have been built in over 500 locations around the world since they started building them in 2004. Through these institutes, China's Ministry of Education teaches the locals Mandarin and calligraphy courses, and they fund celebrations for Chinese holidays. So in other words, these Confucius Institutes help spread around the world the gospel of China, much in the same way that things like the Marshall Plan and Hollywood films have, for a very long time, spread the gospel of the United States. As they increase their soft power around the world, they have multiple different approaches that they are taking. And so it's not totally out of the question that they might add another facet to that strategy. So the play for China here is to attain both minor and major advantages all over the world for themselves and for their interests. These efforts help stabilize their trade infrastructure, while also building up goodwill toward China and toward the Chinese people amongst far-flung populations. The locals benefit when China comes in and builds these valuable things, but the Chinese do as well, and again, this tactic of soft power has been a big part of how the United States has bolstered its own power around the world post-World War II, and other countries have done the same throughout history. China is continuing that tradition, but is potentially ahead of the curve with some of their new methods, should those methods prove successful, at least. We don't know for sure if there's any meat to the rumor that China might get involved in the digital currency space, but it could end up being one more innovation feather in their cap when it comes to soft power, if they make the attempt, and should it prove fruitful. By producing a state-sponsored currency, the Chinese could offer, for instance, farmers in rural African countries a more stable currency than what they often use today, which in some places is a weak local government-managed currency, and in other cases is an unofficial system based on mobile phone minutes that are traded like digital coins. A Chinese replacement for that, one that allowed them better usability and international convertibility into other currencies, could be a very welcome asset. China's digital coins could become the de facto currency for a significant portion of the developing world, and perhaps the developed world as well, depending on how stable it turns out to be. This would also grant China even more power in regions where its digital currency becomes the unofficial, or perhaps eventually official, coin of the realm. It would be something like the power the U.S. enjoys in many places around the world, where the U.S. dollar is relied upon as a strong, stable, baseline currency. People in a lot of different nations store their savings in USDs, and in some cases even peg their local currency to the dollar's value. China could bypass the United States when it comes to this method of soft power by offering their own government-backed token system based on modern technologies rather than outdated currency systems that require many middlemen and a whole lot of cumbersome bureaucratic structures to operate online and internationally, at least at any speed. Digital coinage would do all of those things very quickly by default. So this story is partly about the instability and chaos in existing cryptocurrency markets caused by China's decision to ban ICOs. And it's partly about China throwing its weight around in this space as they maybe clamp down to reinforce the norms, but as they possibly also prepare to step in and make their own play to dominate these fledgling markets. Reinforcing their own soft power while crippling current, decentralized, anonymized cryptocurrency ecosystems. Things that they don't particularly like as an authoritarian, government-controlled economy. And that geopolitical facet is alone a big and interesting story. We tend to focus on physical conflicts like wars and military strikes and terrorist attacks because those are horrifying and visceral and bloody and buildings are knocked down, and sometimes regimes are toppled. But underpinning those events, and sometimes connected to them, but sometimes just adjacent, are other power moves that involve no casualties, no fatalities, but which are perhaps even greater in terms of the stakes that are involved. The benefits of being the managing force behind one of the world's reserve currencies are immense. The USD, the U.S. dollar, for instance, is one of the largest reserve currencies and has been since the mid-20th century, meaning other governments stock up on U.S. dollars for use during international transactions and investments between themselves. The USD is more liquid, than, in some ways and for some purposes, than any other currency. So if South Korea wants to buy military jets from Finland... They might use USDs to do so, because it's easier to work with a safe, fairly steady, reliable currency of that kind. Everyone knows that everyone else has them, so it's just easier that way. And that grants all types of power and authority to the country issuing that currency. In addition to that perceived value, it's estimated that the U.S. government saves around $100 billion per year due to their ability to borrow USDs at a lower cost, and managing the system that produces the USDs to begin with. So being the source of that common currency that is used between nations saves a whole lot of real money, of real wealth, in addition to the brand-related benefits of being the country issuing that unit of exchange. If some other country, be it China or someone else, were to come up with something that served that purpose better, Something that was a digital currency first and which was cryptographically stabilized, much like Bitcoin. That could upset the current reserve currency system, heavily slanting global trade in favor of that innovative nation who made use of the opportunity and made the investments to develop their new token-based mechanism of value exchange. Now, I should note that many large banks are concurrently experimenting with their own cryptocurrencies, hoping to benefit from many of the same advantages that Bitcoin enjoys in the modern digital world while avoiding some of the associated pitfalls. They're hoping to give their customers intuitive ways to use these currencies, for instance, with new interfaces and less opaque instructions on how to use them, while also providing the additional perceived legitimacy of having these currencies tied to mainstream institutions rather than being tied to a loose collection of unattached anonymous online personalities and message boards. But as interesting as that side of the story is, the even more vital facet of this tangle of topics in my mind is the concept of asset tokenization. Remember in the intro when I spoke about liquid and illiquid assets. Liquid assets are more like cash, while illiquid assets are more like real estate and expensive paintings. The latter could hold more value than the former, but you can spend the former, while the latter remains locked up, frozen, requiring something to melt it down, some kind of time consuming sale or other conversion mechanism, if you want to turn it into something spendable. And if you need to move fast, need money spur of the moment chances are you will receive far less than an illiquid asset is worth because of that rush. Selling a house in a buyer's market, for instance, might net you substantially less than waiting for the right buyer at the right time. Pawning a Picasso outside a corner market so you can afford a pack of gum isn't likely to net you the million dollars that painting might sell for if you took the time to auction it through a reputable auction house that is capable of attracting the audience of moneyed buyers who have the proper resources, but also who understand that painting's value. Asset tokenization is a method of making illiquid resources liquid. An initial coin offering, an ICO, like I spoke about before, is a type of asset tokenization for a business. It's taking something of value From that company, which typically would not be liquid, and allowing people to pay for that asset chunk, giving you cash in exchange for a share of it. It's melting a portion of your Ice Cube asset, or even the whole thing potentially, so that you can spend it at will while still somehow leaving the asset intact. So these are symbolic pieces of that asset, allowing you to keep it intact even as you distribute it the more broadly applicable concept of asset tokenization allows you to do that exact same thing to anything any type of illiquid asset could become liquid so you could sell token-based shares of your picasso painting to generate cash rather than selling the painting your picasso coins could cost a dollar a piece and you could sell a million of them and those coins could then for instance grant coin holders a small portion of any revenues that are brought in by the painting. Maybe it's put on display and folks pay to see it, and you are entitled to one one millionth of that revenue for each coin that you hold. Coin holders might also benefit when such an asset is sold. So if the painting is expected to mature in value and to someday be sold for a substantial amount of money, it makes sense to buy into that eventual sale with digital coins representing a percentage of that eventual share price that you hold. And those Picasso coins could then be resold and traded on the cryptocurrency market with value based on their scarcity, but also based on that eventual assumed payout. So you could trade your 10 Picasso coins for 20 rare book coins, each of which grants the holder an hour a week to read one of the books in a rare book collection held by the person who tokenized them. And those rare book coins could be traded for bitcoins, which are easier to convert into cash or to spend at fancy Brooklyn coffee shops to buy a fancy Brooklyn espresso. In many cases, the coins themselves will be worth something inherently and valuable unto themselves. They'll give you a portion of the proceeds if the company they're attached to does well, or access to something that other people don't have access to. But in addition to being tokens representing an investment of some kind, being tethered to some type of tangible value, they're also a type of currency unto themselves. Just like real currencies like USDs or yen, they are finite and they are representative of something valuable. Maybe they're attached to an hour a week with rare books or a share of the eventual sale price of a Picasso painting rather than being tied to a stockpile of gold or silver held by a government. But it amounts to the same thing in practice. And there are already markets out there like Kraken and BTC Trade and Coinbase where you can swap these types of coins for other coins and for bitcoins and Ethereum, and for mainstream currencies as well. And you can go there to purchase coins of this kind or trade them like stocks if you like. Now, these markets are a bit of a wild west at the moment, as there is little or no regulation. And as we've seen in China, they're sometimes frowned upon by local governments who may try to dissuade their people from participating in what could be construed as gambling or some kind of pyramid scheme and in some cases, which actually are, depending on the coins we're talking about. But there are some interesting doors that could open with the widespread adoption of the technologies and methods used to enable asset tokenization. The most fundamental of these opportunities, and the most likely, to my thinking, to emerge in the near future in a popular way, would also be the simplest to instigate. Essentially, replacing the trading of commodities like oil and gold, with cryptographically managed and secured tokens, rather than the current system, which uses a variety of different methods, none of them perfect or developed with the digital, globalized world in mind. This would allow for a more structured, reliable, but also international, trade-friendly system, while also allowing each of these components to be broken apart and liquefied. You could buy a token representing one one-hundredth of a barrel of oil, or a token representing one one thousandth of a gold nugget, more people would be able to get involved in this aspect of investing, and the industries that have historically had a large percentage of their value tied up in illiquid assets could enjoy increased liquidity, allowing them to modernize their systems and perhaps make smarter iterative investments. This could also, more immediately, offer the benefit of avoiding a deluge of traditional time-consuming procedures and expensive regulatory filings. That may or may not be the case if governments accept this standard, or if some other institution like a big bank takes up the reins. It could be that the decentralized component of these technologies would largely disappear, or at least decrease, leaving only the liquefaction of assets portion. But either way, The method of investment in sales in many spaces would change very quickly, and fewer of the world's investments would be frozen in illiquidity. The current systems we have to manage these sorts of investments are better than having to haul around the physical oil itself in order to make trades. The stocks people buy when investing in oil are stand-ins. For barrels of oil, and far more easily traded than hulking metal barrels of petrochemicals. But the stock system still requires that you find someone willing to sell oil before you can buy it, and someone to buy oil before you can sell it. The person looking to buy your oil might be unwilling to pay what you want for it, and this results in less liquidity for these types of assets. You can lose a lot of value when you convert value into other types of value because of this misalignment Not to mention that there's no ability, or rarely is there any ability, to break, for instance, a barrel of oil into much smaller pieces. That would be easier to sell in particular market conditions. Replace the stock market system with a token system, though. And an oil barrel coin can be used as currency to buy essentially anything. So your oil barrel coin tracking the value of that substance, a barrel of oil, could be used to buy groceries or as part of a down payment for a car because the person receiving that coin knows they can trade it for other things or other coins representing other things in the same way. So that's how it works with fungible assets. Fungible meaning things that can be easily replaced by another identical asset. So a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil. So long as they're the same type of oil from the same refinery, you are set, regardless of which specific barrel your token represents. Tokenizing that system is fairly straightforward, and the benefits are relatively clear. With non-fungible assets, things get even more interesting. Tokenizing things in this space goes beyond simply offering better exchange methods and security. You could, for instance, buy part of a loan repayment contract. Someone took out a loan for $100, and the person who is owed that money wants to make that IOU liquid. So they sell 100 tokens for a buck apiece. And the folks who own the tokens then each have a coin that is theoretically worth a dollar plus an additional 1% of whatever interest is eventually paid back on that original loan. These tokens could theoretically end up worth more than the dollar paid for them because of that impending interest. So the trading of them could become speculative in an interesting way, but the owner of that loan is, regardless, able to liquefy an otherwise illiquid non-fungible asset, which could be interesting. At a very basic market-blind level, this is a means of creating mini-markets for all kinds of assets all over the place. It gives people who don't usually invest for a multitude of reasons a means of investing possibly at a very low risk level. And those who have illiquid assets and who tend to squirrel a lot of their wealth away, which causes a whole lot of secondary problems around the world, will be able to make those illiquid assets that they are trying to store as a means of beating inflation, they're able to make them liquid, which allows them to spend more, which allows them to fund certain aspects of society that they otherwise would not be spending on. A system like this becoming available could radically reshape multiple aspects of the global economy. Credit, for instance, may make a whole lot less sense for people, as they'll have more potential sources of liquid assets when they're in a bind, things that will not charge them interest. And this type of system could tie together larger existing markets, like stock markets, and smaller markets, like the... Totality of tokens representing shares in a milking cow owned by a family in Kenya. So I might be able to trade between these markets a dozen Kenyan milking cow coins for a share of Tesla stock if I wanted to. This could create a crazy number of new opportunities and help many new types of ideas and industries find their feet in their early days. And it would particularly help people who have a whole lot of their wealth tied up in one or two main assets like their house or their milking cow, as tends to be the case in a lot of rural communities. But of course, it could also create a bunch of brand new risks, like those associated with portions of this increasingly large interconnected web going down or being abused or being hacked, and it in turn, because of those interconnections, taking down other portions with it. If Tesla topples, it could because of the strange new relationships developed in such a system, also crash the value of Kenyan milking cow coins, which would suck for everyone holding such coins, and which would lower the value for other milking cows on the market. There are also countless hacking vulnerabilities and simple human error vulnerabilities within the current cryptocurrency world. It's good, I think, that a relatively small number of people are playing in this space right now. Because we're able to work out the kinks in the system and solve some of the most glaring problems before they become issues that affect a larger swath of the economy and people who don't have the spare money lying around to play in speculative markets like this one. Hopefully, if and when this system grows bigger and encompasses more people and assets, it'll be more secure and intuitively usable. But because it's become a bit of a race to the finish line for multiple entities, we'll see about that. The token system that takes hold may end up being the one that's rushed out the door and therefore has a whole lot of flaws embedded within it structurally. These technologies and systems have the potential to be incredibly disruptive. They already are in many ways as they represent a shot across the bow for traditional economic gatekeepers, these technologies connect assets and investors more closely and seamlessly than ever before. But like any new innovation, and especially those based on technologies that aren't fully baked quite yet, there will be a period of time during which a lot of the news surrounding it will be hype or misinformed, and a lot of the concerns won't be the proper concerns. While we fixate on one set of things that could go wrong, another set That we hadn't even considered will sneak up behind us and cause a bunch of trouble. That's nearly inevitable on some level when it comes to the expansion of complex systems of this kind. That said, this potential shift could change the way we do business and think about money. It could disrupt and change in dramatic ways the core of the global economy. Or it could be a leapfrog technology that we skip by pretty quickly but which leads us to something even better, which then changes the economy dramatically. Or it could be a flash in the pan that never amounts to anything other than hype and novelty. There's no way to know for sure right now, of course, but certainly is an interesting collection of stories to keep an eye on. And to maybe be thinking in the interim about how much you want to charge for each share of your cat. you're picking up what I'm putting down, enjoying what you hear, consider leaving a review on iTunes. It only takes a second, and those things are a lot more valuable than you might think. You can also help support the show by sharing it with a friend or your social network of choice, or you can contribute monetarily via Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash let's know things. You can also support the show by checking out our sponsors. Everlane is my favorite clothing company for a multitude of reasons. I really enjoy the clothing that they make, the design of it, the look of it, the feel of it, the philosophy behind it, the way that they approach an industry that is very harmful in multiple different ways, and they do their best to alleviate that harm wherever possible. But the combination of those two things, having truly good-looking, well-made clothing combined with that approach to the market is vitally important. And Everlane takes both sides of the coin very seriously. If you'd like to check out their catalog, go to letsnotethingscom Everlane. That will take you to their website and it will ensure that I get a commission for anything that you purchase while there. So it won't cost you anything more, but it's a great way to help support this show while also potentially filling a gap in your wardrobe. letsnotethingscom Everlane. And the other sponsor today is Audible. If you've yet to get into the audiobook thing, this is a great way to try it out before you invest any money in doing so. If you go to audibletrial.com LKT, you will receive a free 30-day trial of Audible and a free audiobook of your choice from their collection. The book that I'd like to recommend today is a book that I read ages ago. It's called Adventure Capitalist by Jim Rogers. This was one of the books that I read before I left L.A. to start traveling full time. And you can kind of tell it's a bit dated in terms of some of the stories that are told, but it's a really great introduction to the concept of investment and investment above and beyond just having like an online app or something that you use to buy stocks every now and then, or maybe the funds that you buy into to try to beat the market over time and beat inflation at the very least. It's a story of a guy who is a hardcore capitalist who travels the world in a bright, colorful, fancy car and looks ridiculous and knows it, but who uses that car as a way of getting in with locals on a trip that takes him to over a 100 countries around the world, many of them newly developed and developing markets. So in places where stock markets are just becoming a thing or are not yet a thing, he goes around and makes small investments in the most rural and far-flung places you can possibly imagine. And so this was pretty inspirational to me a long time ago for several different reasons. I liked the idea of supporting emerging economies, and I liked the idea of going to these places to learn what's actually going on, so you're not just investing from your web browser or from an app. Again, some of the concepts are a little bit dated, and some of his approaches to things and throwing around money and such are a little bit cringeworthy to me today, but it's still a pretty good story. And the adventure that he took back in 1999 that forms the core of this story is pretty compelling and interesting all by itself. Again, that's Adventure Capitalist by Jim Rogers. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at excelifestyle.com and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on whichever social network you're a part of. I'm at Colin is my name on most networks and just Colin Wright on Facebook and on Twitter in particular I tend to share a whole lot of links to interesting things if you are looking for more general interestingness in your life. That's a good place to start. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.